The team and I had a blast going around town and asking people those questions of what do you think about when you think about home? And I would ask you even that same question today is what do you think about when you think about home? What is home to you? See, as we, we got to go and, and not be in a room full of church people and ask that question, one of the things that we found is, is God is still, without a doubt, hardwired that home wanting mechanism. Something inside of us longs to be home. There's something inside of us, whether it's for the sake of dogs or for the sake of, you know, being able to relax and kind of eat it, drink a cup of coffee with a barefoot or whatever it may be. Like there's something inside of every single one of us that longs to be home. And as we've been going through this homecoming series, that's what we're diving into. This fact that God has created us and has called us home. And today we're gonna to dive into uh, the, the father in this story. But before we do, I wanna remind us, you guys have done a great job with this so far. I wanna remind you of the thing that we're doing to be able to help our partners at a friend's house. So a friend's house is a local ministry here in Henry County that helps kids who are at risk. Uh, primarily, these are kids who are at risk because they ran away from home. Maybe their situation at home was, was one that they didn't wanna be a part of, or they were at risk of, of being evicted from their home. They just needed a place to stay. And so a friend house offers kids who are at risk a place to be able to uh, get back on their feet and it provides a home for them. And what we're doing is we're trying to help people uh, both at a friend's house find a temporary home, but we're trying to help people find an eternal home through Christ. And so we kind of wanted to try to knock out two birds with one stone, so to speak, in that. And so what we're doing through the course of this whole series, and, and we'll conclude on Easter, is we are, for every person who shares our Facebook live stream, so you can go on Facebook right now if you're watching on Facebook. Hey, how are you doing? Um, hi, Mom. Uh, you can go on there, press share if you're on Facebook, and you guys can, I'll let you do it. You can pull your phone out. Some of you already had it out. I can tell. I can see everything from up here. This stage It's like 43 feet tall. Um, Go on there, share that, put it back in your uh, pocket or purse. Uh, fellas, put it in your wife's purse so um, you're not tempted to go back and get it. Um, go on there, share that. And for every time that's shared, we're gonna give $10 to a friend's house. And so we're already up over $2,000 in that. That's awesome. Keep doing that. It's gonna be great. Uh, today, I wanna talk to you guys about the Father. And if you got a Bible, you can go to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're gonna be. I'm gonna read you guys a prodigal story and then pray, and then we're gonna dive into what God would have for us today. So if you've got a Bible, go to Luke chapter 15. We're gonna dive into our passage for today, kind of get the story back in our minds. Luke chapter 15 is where we're gonna be. I'm just gonna kind of read through it. We're gonna get it back in our head and then begin to unpack this prodigal father that we all have. Luke chapter 15. I've got to turn there too, so we'll all go on a journey together so you can find it first. Luke 15, walk on down to verse 11. Let's just sit in the passage. I want you to see it, feel it. It's a story you've heard a hundred different times, a hundred different ways. My prayer is that we can see it, feel it, and know this God's word to us today. Luke 15, we're gonna go start in verse 11, go all the way through. This is the word of God. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with wild living. And after he had spent everything there, a severe famine and that hit that whole country. And he began to be in need. And so he went, he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
Then he came to his census and he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? But here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up, he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to the father, or the the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back home safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Let's pray together. Father God, it is miraculous that we can call you Father. It is an amazing stroke of grace mercy and truth that we, God, sinners as we are and were, could be welcomed back into this family. This family that you longed for us to be in since the moment that humanity was the dream that you dreamt. You had us in mind. Every one of us, God, the days of our life have been ordained you knew the very moments that we would come and sit in this room. God, we're, we're not here, whether we're online or in person, we're not here by accident. We're not even here because we chose to be here. We are here because you chose for in this moment, us to be in this place around your word because your word has that much power. Your word spoke solar systems into existence. Your word put human life in its place. Your word rose the sun from the grave. It is that power that we sit under today. So Jesus, remove whatever distractions you need to. Allow us to have an encounter with your word. Purify me as the vessel through which you will pour your word from so that what happens today, God, would not draw attention to me, this church, or anything that is of us, but would only draw attention to you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Heal those who are broken this morning. And those who think they are fully put together and all well, break them where they need to be broken so that they can be who you have called them to be. In your name, amen. I don't know what was going on inside of my heart and head when I was in seventh grade, but for some reason in seventh grade, I ran away from home twice. 
Maybe it was hormones. Maybe it was what was going on at home. I'm pretty sure that was the year that I started uh, getting hair in my armpits. I, I, I think that was, that was a weird time. And I was trying to figure out life. I was trying to figure out what was going on. And at the same time, there was a lot of tension going on at home. And around seventh grade, I, I ran away from the home the very first time. And the reason I ran away from home then was I had made good grades, which was abnormal for me. I, I made good grades. And my parents promised if I made A's and B's, I could get a brand new skateboard. I was into skateboarding again. Some of you would never believe that looking at me now. Uh, but I had really long curly hair, wore puka shell necklaces. I was just very much into skateboarding. And that's just what I wanted to do. And so they didn't get me that. They, they broke their word. I, and, and again, at the time, I just thought they were being jerks. But what the reality was is they just were broke. And they'd have the money to do that. And so I get home and I said, I'm done. Done with this family. And so I packed my bag. Um, me and some of my buddies, we had stolen a bunch of uh, Girl Scout cookies. And so I loaded my, my, my backpack full. Of, don't judge me. This is before Christ. Um, it wasn't directly from girls either. I'll just make that clear. Like we just found a bunch of Girl Scout cookies and we're like, nobody's here. These can be ours, uh, which I guess technically they are from girls. But anyway, we don't got to get into the details. Got a bunch of those Girl Scout cookies, put them in my backpack. I emptied out a two liter of Coke that was in the refrigerator and I knew that would dehydrate me. So I refilled it with water and I just put that in my backpack. And where we lived, right, if you went through the woods of our house, you got onto the railroad tracks. So me and my friends, we would play on the railroad tracks all the time. And I knew that if I go on the railroad tracks and I went that way from Carrollton, I would go to Noonan. So my, my goal was I am gonna leave my parents' house and I'm gonna go to where every kid knows he can be unconditionally accepted. I'm going to grandma's house. Right? And my thought process as a seven-year-old dummy was I can just get on these railroad tracks and I can go all the way there. Just I'll cross over the Chattahoochee River. I'll know when that happens. I've, I mean, I had ridden across the Chattahoochee River enough times going from my house to my grandparents' house to know that there was a bridge that went right across and I'll just cross the Chattahoochee and I'll go to my grandparents' house and it'll be good. And that particular time, uh, I got all the way into Whitesburg, Georgia, which again, some of you are like, I don't know where this is at. If you've ever been to like Whitesville or Blacksville in Henry County, I'm talking about the same thing, or Ola, kind of like similar stuff. So I, I'm out there in a town that you've never heard of. And I just go, this is a bad idea. <laughs> I'd ran out of Girl Scout cookies and I depleted my water because it was hot. And it was like 100% humidity that day. And I decided I probably should go home. The second time I ran away, uh, it was more of a road away. Uh, it was just a Saturday. And I don't know, I guess, I guess this was one of those days I just woke up and I was just in my feelings. And I decided I'm gonna get on my Diamondback BMX bike with front and back pegs. And I'm gonna ride out until I can't ride anymore. I'm just gonna go wherever I go. And I got on Whooping Creek Church Road. And again, country. I get on Whooping Creek Church Road and I just ride and ride and ride as far as I can until the sun started to go down. And I decided this is a bad idea. I started to go home. And both of those times when I started to go home, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I would imagine there's probably some of you who, who tried to run away from home and you had the same realization I did that this is stupid and uh, you got hungry. You ran out of Girl Scout cookies maybe. But I decided to go home. And both the times I ran away in seventh grade, there was something inside of me that was okay with my parents being very angry at me because that would at least show that they realized I was gone. That they, that they noticed my presence was absent from the house, that I mattered enough for even you to be concerned. And both the times as I came back, I came back, I think some of that is even what drew me back home was going, okay, well, well they'll, now they'll be, oh, we're so sorry. And we did, I wanted them to repent to me of not getting me the skateboard or whatever it was that they had done. 
But I think the, the deeper part was there was something inside of that little boy who wanted to know two questions, that I mattered to you and that you would miss me if I was gone. And that's why it was a huge bummer when I got back and they didn't even realize I was gone. Which again, if you grew up kind of in that era, like if you, if you were a, a teenager or you were a seventh grader in 2000, whatever that I was, it was not a big deal for you to leave out in the, you know, four o'clock and not get home until dark. Now, right. Like if your kids do that now, like there's helicopters flying around looking for them, like it's a whole different ball game. But back then it was a totally normal thing for me to leave the house at three or 3 p.m. post school and not get home until the streetlights kicked on. So nobody was like, where's Trent? You know, none of that happened. And I tell you all that story because I think deep hardwired in the heart of every human being are those two questions. And I think God actually, when he created us, not just as God, the creator, but God, the father, I think he hardwired those two questions within our DNA. And the fact that we search for it in human parents shows to me that we are actually looking for it in a heavenly father. That that deep within our hearts, we are looking for and craving and looking for an answer to the question of, do I matter to you, God? Do I matter to you, Father, and would you miss me if I wasn't with you? And see, I believe that Jesus, part of his reason, part of the reason that God sent him to earth was to answer those two questions for humanity, for me and for you. Anybody who's ever wondered those two questions, do I really matter to God? Does he really care about me? Does he actually miss me? Or does he just kind of looking at the bad things I do and say, I, I miss you when you're behaving. I miss the good attitude you. I miss the good finances you. I miss the good purity you. I miss the good you. Or does God just miss me? Does the father just miss me? I think he hardwired that into our hearts. And I think part of the reason he sent Jesus from heaven to earth was to with a resounding yes, answer yes to both of those questions. That yes, child, I do love you. And yes, child, you do matter to me. And yes, child, I do miss you when you're not in my home. And I believe that's part of the reason why Jesus told this parable. Remember who he told it to. Jesus is telling this parable to two crowds of people, the haves and the have-nots, the religious and the rebels. The the Bible calls them the tax collectors and sinners as the have-nots. And then it tells them as the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious teachers. That's the group that are the haves. They're the people who knew that they were on God's side and God was on their side. And then there's the other people that's kind of, there's the catch-all phrase. It's just the sinners and the tax collectors. So Jesus is telling them this parable, both of them, so that they hear and see themselves in this parable. And the reason that he is prompted to tell this parable is the religious people in the room go, Jesus, why in the world are you eating with these kind of people? Why are you eating with tax collectors? Why are you eating with sinners? Why are you hanging out with prostitutes? Why are you with those thugs, Jesus? And in his response to their question, he says this collection of parables The first one he tells about a lost sheep and then he tells about a lost coin and then he does the one that we've been leaning here to now about two lost sons. And we call this story the parable of the prodigal son. And we've been talking about this from the beginning. It's really a kind of a bad name. If anything, maybe you could call it, and I don't really necessarily go to this one either, you could call it the parable of the prodigal sons because both of them are lost But I would even take it a step further than that and say, this is the parable of the prodigal father. The true definition of the word prodigal is not uh, going out into the far country and doing bad things. The true definition of the word prodigal is reckless. As we look through the story, and as we just read through the story, you see nobody more reckless in this story than the father. 
to recap a little bit before we dive into the, the passage we're gonna start with today, which is verse 17, is you have this younger brother and he comes to the father and he says, father, give me my share of the inheritance. And he takes that inheritance and he goes out into the far country and we don't know all the details about what he's doing while he's there, but he wastes all of that inheritance. And then he has this kind of come awake moment and he realizes I have got to go back to the father. We pick up in verse 17. Let's look at what it says. Verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. So he comes to his senses. Now again, if you underline stuff in your Bible, underline that. He comes to his senses. How many of my father's hired servants? When you see hired servants here, don't think about people who he hired and they work with him all day in, day out. Think about the people who stand at the gas station and wait for the people to, who are like contractors to come by and just say, hey, I just need to work today. And they go to work that day and they get paid, they get food in their belly, and then it's on to the next day. You know, it's not paycheck to paycheck, it's payday, it's day to day labor. And that's who these people were. He says, hey, I know my father, he hires these people to come into the farm, come into the, the family uh, acreage and to do their work and to do those things. I know he hires those people. He says, my, God, my dad is generous enough that they actually have food to spare, which was saying my dad goes above the law and the regulation of what you have to do a day laborer. The regulation was you have to only pay a day laborer this amount of money, don't, and most people would not pay them any more than that. But he says, I have a generous father who when the day laborers leave his house, they actually come back the next day with leftovers in their lunch pail. He knows that's the type of father he has. So he says, they have that going on. And I, here I am starving to death. Verse 18, he says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna set out and go to my father and I'm gonna say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. All right, now what I'm really gonna to try to do today is we're gonna get into some details. My main goal is to be able to put this parable into context for you and not, uh, when you hear context, it's not just figuring out what was going on in the Old Testament, but I want you to be able to see and hear and feel and taste and smell this parable from the original listeners in Mediterranean eyes, in Middle Eastern eyes. Remember, the Bible was not written as a group of people who lived in America. It was written not to a Western society, but a Middle Eastern society. A culture that was more based around honor than our culture that's based on identity and, and self-adulation. That's what their culture was based on, based on honor. And so to, to explain a couple of things in here that you've got to realize, in an honor culture, and I want you to be able to put yourself in the mind of the people who are listening to and hearing this for the very first time, when they hear about this audacious younger brother who would say, I want the family inheritance and I'm going to go take it and I'm going to go live how I want to live. They know that this, the people who are hearing this for the very first time, both the sinners and the, the, the quote unquote sinners and the people who are religious and righteous, they hear this and they know two things. This is a son who is now cut off from that family, but two, and this is what we sometimes don't get. This is also a child who is now cut off from our community. He is banished from the entire village. He is banished from our entire community and our family. He's not allowed even back in our city. Most of the cities back in that time, they had gates around the city. That, and, and a lot of times when we close our eyes and we see this parable of the prodigal son story, we picture this guy with this giant, you know, 250 acre ranch with a house on the hill. We think about that because we're Americans. Nobody in Middle Eastern culture would have closed their eyes as Jesus is telling that story and they would have saw that. They saw a big city with a gate around it. And they know that when this kid leaves, he's leaving and he has the knowledge of everybody in the city knowing what he just did. He brought dishonor on his father and he also brought dishonor on his entire community. And so everybody listening to the story, they know that 
the only way he can ever come back into the community is if he goes through a ceremony, a special religious ceremony that we're gonna talk about today because he didn't just dishonor his father, he dishonored the entire community. And they know that because of what details Jesus gives them, that the only way he could come back in is if he went through this ceremony. Jesus tells them that he was eating or he was, you know, got hired out and he was trying to eat, essentially, he wanted to eat, he was desiring to eat the pods of pigs, which is kind of like when you're stranded in a a boat in the middle of the ocean in salt water and you're longing to be able to, you're so thirsty that you want to drink salt water. But the salt water will do what if you drink it? It'll eventually kill you, right? It will satisfy you immediately. You're like, oh gosh, and then eventually because of the salt and the water, you die. Same thing with the pods of the pigs. He couldn't have even eaten the pig pods. They would have killed him. The things in a human stomach could never digest a pig pod, but he's longing to die. He's saying, I am so hungry that I'm at this place like a, like a starving person on a shipwreck in the middle of the ocean. I'm almost willing for the temporary satisfaction of a pig pod. I'm almost ready for the temporary satisfaction of a gulp of the salt water, even though I know it would kill me because I am that desperate. And so again, everybody hears that. They know those details and they know that the only way this son can come back. So they hear, they know he's out there. They, only, they know the only way he can come back if he goes through the ceremony called Kezaza. All right, let me put this up here. Kezaza, can we say that together? It's a fun word to say. Kezaza. Kezaza, Mufasa, Kezaza, like that's how we, that's it, Kezaza, all right? So Kezaza is a ceremony that has been uh, brought to my attention. I, I was reading the, uh, this book by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. And he's, he's a doctor, he's a theologian, he's a historian and a linguistic. And he wrote a book and I would highly recommend it if you're fascinated by all this stuff. And really, if you just wanna like know your Bible in the context that it was written, uh, he wrote a really good book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And in that book, he talks about this ceremony. And I'm gonna read a quote from him uh, in, in that book. So it's historian, theologian. Uh, he spent 40 years, again, teaching in the Middle East. He lived there. So he's not just saying, hey, here's what I thought, but he actually lived there and did stuff there. Um, and this is what he said. He says, in the Jewish Talmud, which let me just pause for a second and explain to you what that means so that you get what he's saying there. So, and, and forgive me, you guys, uh, I'm nerding out on this. And anybody other than Bible nerds in here? Okay, cool, great. Awesome, my people. All right, so I want you to be able to understand this. And again, this isn't just for people who just want to nerd out. This is, let's understand the context, okay? Because that's, that's key in here. So the Jewish people, which again, Jesus is a Jew. Everybody, most of the people who are probably hearing this whole parable go down are Jewish people. Jesus is a Jew and the Jews, they got what they did and didn't do from what's called the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books, that's basically how they govern and live their life. It was called the books of Moses. Moses is apparently the one who wrote those. So we go off of the Torah for how we live our life. That's our rules and regulations. Accompanying the Torah was the Talmud. And the Talmud was essentially the guide to how to live out the Torah. So you had all the rules and regulations. You had things like don't dishonor your mother and father. And then contained within the Talmud was, okay, here's what to do if somebody breaks that. Here's how you avoid doing that. So if there was in the Torah, don't dishonor your mother and father. And the Talmud was the only way that person who dishonored their mother and father could ever be brought back into the community is if they go through a kezaza ceremony. Now, what that would have looked like, and and I'll finish out the quote here and he'll explain what happens. So um, 
says the Jewish Talmud and elsewhere in the writings of the sages, we are told that at the time of Jesus, the Jews had a method of punishing any Jewish boy who lost his family inheritance to Gentiles. The community developed what was called the Kazaza ceremony, which means the cutting off. Any Jewish boy who lost his inheritance among Gentiles, which this kid obviously did, or that, and we have proof positive for that, that he's trying to feed pigs. No Jewish farmer would have pigs. He's a Gentile farmer. It's obvious, and that's the reason Jesus gives us that detail, so that it's obvious to his listeners that this kid lost his inheritance to Gentiles. So he says, anybody, any Jewish kid who lost his uh, inheritance to Gentiles or married an immoral woman, they faced the ceremony if he dared to return to his home village. The ceremony itself was simple. Fellow villagers would fill a clay pot with burned nuts and burned corn and bake and break it in front of the guilty individual. While doing this, they would shout, so-and-so is cut off from his people, which is essentially them shouting his name and Kezaza, his name, Kezaza. And from that point on, the village would have nothing to do with this hapless lad. Obviously that wasn't a Trent quote because I don't talk about people's lads, but that's a Kenneth Bailey quote. He's understanding that. And so again, what's happening here is they would, if this kid wanted to come in, he would be met at the city gates. People would see him coming, all right? And then they would, you know, pretty much just have the ceremony and they would fill up the pot with corn and flour and burn it, which if you've ever, you know, you remember those first few uh, weeks of of marriage, fellas, you know what that burnt food smells like. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. We all, it's happened. Uh, we ate out a lot. Um, so you, you, that's a smell you can't get out of your nose. And, and, and that's the smell that's coming out of this clay pot. And so what they would do, and, and, and here's, a, here's a fascinating detail on this. The, the father of the son was not allowed to come in. He, he wasn't allowed to be a part of the ceremony. The father was the one who the primary sin and dishonor was against. So he, he was, it was mainly uh, the mom was allowed to come in, but the kind of the elders of the society, uh, the elders of the village, they would be the ones who would meet him at the gates, who would see him coming and go, and they would see him and recognize and remember, okay, you're the one who took your father's inheritance and you wasted it all. We know that you went to the Gentile country and here you are trying to come back into our family. Here you are trying to come back into our village. And they would hear his, his plea. They would try to hear him out which is why when he's in the far country, while he's feeding the pigs, he says, okay, let me just, let me get my speech together. He's not, I don't believe, and I think the original listeners would have, would have been here. He's not getting his speech together necessarily to give it to father. He's getting his speech together to give to the Kezaza ceremony so that they can go ask the father. Because he knows that the only way he's getting back into his hometown is to go through this ceremony. And what's fascinating here in this is when you then read what happens next in the story, knowing that, the, again, the original Middle Eastern listeners, when they hear this happening, they don't get the picture in our minds like we do. Like the father had a 250-acre ranch on the hillside, and the guy, the, the young son, when he comes home, he could just avoided everybody. He could just, you know, went back roads to get to dad's house. That's not the case. So let's look at the, the passages that, that come after that. Verse 20, the back half of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off. And again, that long way off is not him down at the very end of the gate by the dad's mailbox. 
that long way off is him outside of the, and I think this is what most people would have saw this as, Middle Easterners listening to this, he is outside of the city gates. So his father sees him and father is filled with compassion and he runs to his son. He throws his arm around him and he kisses him. Now, again, like I said, I don't think that he is running down the driveway. I think however this played out, and I think this is how the Middle Easterners would have imagined this, they see, he sees his son making his way in. I says, I've got to get to my boy before he gets to the gates. And so the father takes his robe. And again, this was very much unheard of. He rolls his robe up, cinches it around his waist, says skies out, thighs out. And he just heads off to chase his son, to get to the gates before his son gets to Kezaza. He's willing to be as dishonorable as he needs to be. And again, like we would maybe do some dishonorable things in the privacy of our own home. Like everybody's, you know, pick their nose when nobody's looking at the house, but he is here running through town, blatantly fine with being as dishonorable as he needs to be, could care less about what the rest of the city, what the rest of the village thinks about him because all he's concerned about is that his child, his son knows how much he loves him and what exactly he thinks about him. So he runs to him and he kisses him. And obviously, I don't know, again, I'm trying to do a little bit of a redeemed imagination here. I I, I picture myself kind of as the servant of the father, and you just see this old man with gray beard and everything else just kind of roll his stuff up. I'm like, what are you doing? And then he just takes off and you're his servant. So you're just like, well, I just got to follow him, I guess. And you just, both of you guys are bobbing and weaving through town and you get to the gate. You go, oh, I see why you're running. It's him again. And then you hear the son's speech. The son says to him in verse 21, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, again, if you are a Middle Easterner listening to this, you don't go, oh, thank goodness, the son is so repentant. I think uh, we can show you there, there's a verse in Exodus, which again, the Exodus was one of the, one of the uh, books of the Bible that the religious people in the crowd that day would have had memorized, okay? So in Exodus, there's this passage. It comes after the eighth plague that Moses had called out on Pharaoh. Everybody remember the plagues, plagues you know, Prince of Egypt, all that stuff? So Moses is on behalf of God calling all these plagues out on Pharaoh because he won't let his people go. You hit about the eighth plague and Pharaoh finally says these words. I think we can show you the Exodus verse. Pharaoh says these words. See if they sound familiar to what the son just said. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron in and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Hastily. What Pharaoh is doing here is he's saying, these plagues kind of stink and I really just want them to be over. So I'll say what I gotta say. I don't really believe in your God, but I ask forgiveness from your God and ask forgiveness for you so that all these plagues can stop. It wasn't a repentant Pharaoh. It was a Pharaoh who was trying to cut a deal to make it stop. And so we hear the son in this part and he's, oh, he just met his father. He's repenting. I've sinned against heaven and against you. No, this is still a son who is trying to work his way out of what he has messed up. He's, and everybody listening right there would have gone, oh, oh, that sounds like what Pharaoh said. But they know, what did Pharaoh do after that eighth plague? He didn't let the people go. He kept doing, he wasn't repentant at all. And that's, again, Jesus in his amazing ability to pull out the details and put in the details exactly where they need to be. He does this in the story to show that this isn't a repentant son. This is a son who is still dead set on repaying his father. So he comes and, He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, which all was 100% true. Verse 22 says, but the father said to the servants, 
quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. And again, I think sometimes we picture this the servant there with him. And I think, again, I'm trying to put myself in the Middle Eastern mind. I think they're not at home right now. They're in the middle of the city. He's met him at the gates. Kazaza has been avoided. No clay pot has been filled with burnt stuff. The clay pot has not been thrown down. Instead of the clay pot, what does he get? He gets a gold ring. He gets a robe of righteousness. He gets sandals. And the father tells the servant, hey, I think some of this is why he says, hey, quick, run, go back to the house, essentially, and get all these things because my boy is not walking through town looking like this. He puts those things on him and they go home. They get home, you can already smell brisket. And what I want you to see here, and I said this earlier when we were going through the prodigal's return the first time, but I want you to see this again in light of the Kazaza ceremony what the father is bringing on himself here is, is a full amount, not of just disgrace in his own private home, but he is bringing disgrace to all the people in the society who think this is how a father should love his kids. And that's the reason Jesus is telling us this story to completely upset the apple cart and completely blow out of the water any idea or any thought about God that you had before this story. And he I think he's making this point. I think God will make this point to you that God will be as disgraceful as he needs to be to show you grace and that God will be as undignified as he needs to be to restore your, your dignity. We have a God who would roll his sleeves up and that would pull his robe up and come to you. And we have a God in Jesus who did both of these, who became disgrace. The Old Testament said it is, a, it is a curse for any man to hang upon a tree. And Jesus came and he hung upon a tree. And there's nothing more dishonorable than a cross. There's nothing more dishonorable than to be whipped and naked and eye level with people walking through the town streets, being able to see you there, bloody whipped and mutilated. And again, it doesn't have necessarily all to do with the fact that that is a dishonorable position for just a normal person to be in. It's dishonorable because it's the King of Kings. It's Christ. It's the Son of God, the Son of Man. And from the heights that he was at when he traded in the perfect unity that he had with the father to come to a cross. And what I want you to see happening here is this older son, I think this is the reason why Jesus is telling this story. And again, why he's telling it to the group of people that he's telling them to. They know that the missing part of this story is the kazaza. And so they're going, where is that? Where is that? Where is it? Where's the clay pot being broken? Where's the kazaza ceremony? The kazaza ceremony is the cross. It's, it's Jesus there saying out to his father, Lama, Lama, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? Because there at the foot of the cross, the clay pot of all of the sins, all the judgment, all of our sins that were ashes before God are broken before him. And Jesus gets cut off so that we can receive the wide open welcome of a father who says, I am willing to let your true older brother be cut off from the family so that you can be a part of the family. I'm willing to give him kazaza so you can get grace, so that you can be welcomed in, so that you can be given back the inheritance that you wasted because of the bloodline that was spilt so that you could be redeemed. And I pray that as you think about Jesus, as you see the gospel and what was traded in so that you could have a place in this family that you see a father who is re relentless 
and dare I even say reckless and what he would be willing to spend so that you can have a place back in the family. So that you through repentance, so that you through you turning from your sins could be welcomed in. But I want you to see like, maybe you missed this in the story. Who's making all the first moves? Father. Father makes all the first moves. He's making the first moves in your life. He's got you here to make first moves in your life. Father knew the son was coming back. That's why the calf was what? Fattened. He didn't tell the, hey, servant, go get the rings and the robe and see what's in the pantry. I don't know. Let's throw, throw, throw something together. Do you know, there's a hodgepodge. Like, you know, get, get a pot going. Just throw, throw what we got in there. No, he said, I knew the son was coming home. That's why we've been fattening the calf. We've been fattening the calf. I knew we were getting close to this day and today is that day. And I would tell you, Jesus is prepared for you to repent today. The father is prepared to you to release the control and, and fully surrender your life to him. He's prepared to receive you in today. And the reason I tell you all this and the reason it is good news that Jesus went through Kezaza so that you never would is that for all of us in our life, you are gonna come up to a gate. And that gate is the judgment of God. Like the, the, the final time when you're, you're gonna hit this end of your earthly human life where your body is gonna fade away and I believe that's gonna be the moment where you stand before God and you have to give an account for your life. There's a there's passage in Hebrews I wanna show you guys. It's Hebrews uh, chapter nine, verse 27 through 28. We, we don't know a lot of things that are promised to us in life, but this verse gives us an idea of two things that we know for sure are coming. It says, just as people are destined to die once, which welcome to MCC, you're gonna die at some point. It's just a promise. That's one of the things that we know is gonna happen. I know you don't wanna hear that on Sunday as beautiful as today is, but at the end of the day, here's what I have to tell you. The whole gospel is friend, you're gonna die at some point. That's a, that's a promise, okay? You're gonna die once. And here's the second part. And after that, to face judgment. Trust me, you want a God who is judgmental. You want a God who will judge whether or not you put your faith in him or not. This is actually the most loving thing God can do is to judge us based off of what we did and the faith that we put in or did not put in his son, the surrender that we gave to his son or did not give to his son to rule and to reign, not just as savior of our life, but Lord of our life. He says, we are all destined to die once and after that we will face judgment. And I, I, the way I would put this here is we will stand at the gate of the city, the holy city of God. You will stand at that gate one day. And the same way in this story, the father ran and ran and ran and moved throughout the city, was willing to be dishonorable dishonor, but so that he could get to his son before he got to the gate. I believe today that your father, your father has been running after you so that he could get to you before you get to the gate. Before you get to the place where you're gonna have to stand and give account for everything that you did, everything that you said, everything that you looked at, everything that you spent money on, that before you get to that place in your life, whether it's prodigal for religion or it's prodigal with rebellion, that you could get to this place where you say, when I get to the city gates, I will be there with a robe of Christ's righteousness on my back. I will be there with shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. I will have a ring that shows the identity of myself to the whole world that I am one of God's children. I'm a co-heir with Christ. That when you get to those gates, you are clothed. And that's what your father has done for you. And so the question then becomes, you know, we, we ask, we like to like, act, act to, we, we like to ask questions about, okay, well, how do I live in this? How do I experience this? Well, we ask questions like this. Well, how do I find God? How do I find God in my singleness? How do I find God in my infertility? How do I find God in my finances? How, how do I find God in, in my old age or moving parents back? How do I find God in the midst of my life? 
And if he is the father that we've been talking about in this series, the question does not become, how do I find God? The question becomes, how do I let myself be found by God? How do I come out of hiding? How do I take the gauze off the wounds that I have and begin to allow him to heal them? Where we would like to ask, well, how do I know God? Well, I just wanna know what he's like. I wanna know, you know who he is and what he's doing. How do, I, how do I know God? The question now becomes, how do I let myself be known by God? If we have the father who sprints through the city to come after us, well, then how do I let myself be known by him? To be brutally honest with him, to share my struggles with him, to not think I have to uh, placate to the God that I think he is or the God who I uh, paint him as based off the image of my earthly father. How do I just see him as a heavenly father he is and then let him know me as his child? And then the last question we often ask a lot of times is, well, how do I love God? What does that look like in 2022 to love God? How do I do that? What, what do I need to do with my money? What do I need to do with my purity? What do I need to do with my attention? What do I need to do with church? What, 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 what do I do? How do I love God? Question then becomes, if we have a father like this, the question becomes, how do I let myself be loved by God? How do I let myself be loved by God in the midst of my anxiety? How do I let myself be loved by God even when I have suicidal thoughts? How do I let myself be loved by God even when I commit the same sin that I said I would never commit again, again? How do I let myself be loved by God even when I hate people who look different than I do? How do I let myself be loved by God even when I feel like it is just a matter of time before I completely blow up this amazing blessing of a life he's given me? How do I let myself be loved by God? I think the answer to all those questions is simply put, to come home, to come home and to stay there and to know that, that it's only within the home that you can find all the things that you truly need. You've wandered around the earth enough to know that the things that you're looking for, that you really want, they can only be found in the Father's house. And what's crazy is we leave the Father's house wanting the very things that we can only find there. And today we're getting ready to see a, a real life in living color testimony of a young woman coming home. In a second, me and Lisa Crawford are gonna get to baptize a woman named Yvonne. Yvonne actually very recently had a heart attack. An older, our younger son had a famine to bring him to his senses. He talked to Yvonne about her story. She would say the heart attack is what brought her to her senses, which again, I'm not asking for a famine or heart attack on anybody, but I'm just telling you, God will do whatever he has to do to wake you up. And after this happened, she, she began to realize, I don't know if we're right. I don't know if the father and I are where we should be. I don't, I don't. She began to question and ask and she began to do research and research churches in our area and be able to look for things. And, and by some stroke of God's grace, she found MCC online and watched online a couple of times and said, this is, this is there's something different here. And then came and, and started coming and, and met Miss Lisa Crawford back at the welcome table. And again, for all you people who are maybe new here today, and you're like, oh, I'm just gonna go out there and just gonna hand me a note card and everything else. She met Miss Lisa Crawford at the welcome table, got to know her, and then they were at lunch like three days later. All right? So no new people when you come into MCC, you're not just meeting a bunch of perfect people who pretend to have their stuff together. You're meeting people who want to know you as family and will, will take you to lunch, who will, and maybe not today, I don't know, I don't, I don't wanna speak for them, but like, who will know, figure out what's going on in your life. I tell people all the time, MCC is a really hard church to sneak in and sneak out of. 
And it's not because we're weirdos. It's because we love you. And the only reason that that's there is just because we've received this crazy unconditional love from a father who knows us, sees us, and has compassion on us. And so they went, they, they met and they started. And Miss Lisa Crawford began to know some more about her story. And, and there they prayed and she asked Christ to come and be the Lord and savior of her life. And then just kind of on her own, Yvonne's like, I, I, need to, I need to get baptized. So we're gonna get to do that today. And then when she comes out of the water, I pray that you would make the loudest noise you can and let her hear the welcome party that I believe um, (laughs) mirrors what's going on in heaven. Bible says, uh, it says angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Now I I want you to know something, like as much as I love Yvonne, the reason that those angels are going bonkers when she comes out of the water is not because she came out of the water. It's not going, way to go, Yvonne, way to go, Miss Lisa, you got the assist trip, maybe you did something. They're like, way to go, you guys down there. The angels in heaven rejoice because I believe as they come out of the water, all of their attention goes back to Jesus and goes, another one, way to go. I was like, man, again, another person. Look at what the cross did for them. Look at what it happened, look what happened. And they go crazy because they're going, Jesus, I know it was dark. I know it was painful. I know it was bleak. I know that, man, I have no idea what it's like to go to hell for that many times and come back and be raised up. I had no idea what it was like to have flesh and bone on and have people betray you. But look what just happened. That's why they go nuts. Not because of her, not because of me, not because of MCC. They go crazy because they go, another one, Jesus. And today, maybe, maybe you're the another one too. Maybe today, like the thing you know God wants to lead you to is baptism as well. I, I felt this when I was driving in this morning. I don't know why, I, I don't, I'll say it. And I don't say this to be argumentative. Please understand that. <sighs> Yvonne, she's, she's coming out, and maybe this is why the Holy Spirit put this on my guts. She's coming out of a, um, a Catholic background. So it was really hard. And she's still dealing with some stuff where family is just like, we're not for this. She's saying, well, Jesus is for me and I'm for him. So that's that, which is bold and brave. Keep praying for her, keep praying for her family that she would be a light to them. But some of you, maybe you got baptized when you were a little kid or maybe you got baptized when you were a baby. And, and to, to those, and again, I'm not asking this question to be argumentative. I just ask this question for you to begin to search your heart and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Upon whose faith were you baptized as a child? Upon whose faith were you baptized as a baby? Yours or your parents? I believe it is our faith that, that leads us to repentance. It's our own personal faith that leads us to salvation. And, and I'm, just, I'm not just trying to speak to people to, to call people who are coming out of Presbyterian or Methodist or a Catholic or, or Episcopalian background who got baptized as a kid. I, I'm not trying to you know, get all those people in the room to make sure they were baptized as grownups. What I'm trying to do is to, to, to get all of us in the room to go, has my faith led my body to surrender? Because that is saving faith. That is faith that we know that we have fully accepted and received the seat around the table that we were made for. And if that's you and you know that Jesus is calling you into that baptism, I'd look, mark it on the card or go out there. Um, we'll find, go talk to somebody at the welcome table. We'll, we'll get them to walk your tail back up there. We have everything you need to get baptized today. Seriously, I'm not kidding. I'm not just saying that to be cute. Literally, we have everything. I didn't even show up with what I needed to get baptized today because I'm forgetful and I'm borrowing shorts today too. So like me and you can get in borrowed shorts and get baptized today. 
That's just how good God is. But for some of you, that's your step. And you, you think that you're talking to yourself right now and it's not you talking to you, it's the Holy Spirit talking to you, it's the voice of your heavenly father talking to you. And my prayer is that you wouldn't delay, you wouldn't say no, that you would heed the words of Hebrews 9 that say, hey, it's destined for one man to die. And the unfortunate thing is we don't get to pick when that is. And you would just surrender today and not wait. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna invite you to receive communion. And I pray that you receive communion with joy today knowing that you have a place around the table, that you have acceptance into the Father's house, that you have um, a way that's been made for you because of Jesus's righteousness transferred onto you. And that you know that this is a meal of joy. What's fascinating about this whole story is a meal that prompted it, right? So why are you eating with those people? And then here, 2000 plus years later, Jesus gets to eat with those people again. All you in this room, all you watching online with communion, myself included. And I pray that you just rejoice in the fact that you have a seat around the table with a savior like him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. Meet with your people today as they commune with you. In your name, amen.